welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning and uh, welcome along this morning. Thrilled that you're here with us at Gateway. Um, The last few Sunday mornings, I've been talking to you uh, on the subject of um, the mission of God. Um, Every time I think I've introduced it with the thought that um, as a pastor, I read, you know, lots of books. That's part of my job description, I guess. But one of the, you know, every now and then you read a book and you think, gee, I wish everybody in the congregation could read this. And one such book is the book, The Mission of God by Christopher Wright, um, subtitled Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. It is a fabulous book, and it's one of those books that you think, gee, I wish everybody could read that. Um, Realistically, it's um, about 690 pages, and uh, you just know that not everybody's going to read it. Um, So as I said to you at the start of this series, I thought, you know, there's more than one way of skinning a cat. Maybe I can preach it. And so this series really is um, based around uh, Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God. Um, In the first message, I I introduced you to the idea of mission uh, when you talk to an evangelical Pentecostal kind of congregation about mission, and almost immediately their mind goes to cross-cultural missions. That's, That's how we tend to think about that particular word. And um, Christopher Wright spends the first portion of his book talking about the fact that the idea of mission is much, much wider than that. That cross-cultural mission is just a small subsection of a much wider idea or concept of mission. And he presents the idea that the Bible is actually, from its inception to its conclusion, a missional phenomenon. It is the grand story of what theologians call the Missio Dei, the mission of God. Again, when we tend to think about mission, we tend to think of us being on mission. The idea, however, that Wright presents is that we have a God who is on a mission. Right from the beginning, the Bible is the grand story of God's mission to put the cosmos and the people that he created in it to to, uh, reflect his image back on track and to fulfill their destiny after the radical fracture that was caused by their rebellion. So in the second mission, we considered the God of the mission by looking into the book of Exodus. And we saw that the book of Exodus lays down a paradigm uh, that would help God's people understand something of his character, something of his redeeming grace. And, And so in message two, we talked about the God who wants to be known, the God who is incomparable and sovereign, and the God who acts for the sake of his own reputation. Now, I tried to unpack that idea because when you hear of somebody who's acting for the sake of their own reputation, that tends to conjure up rather negative images. You know, as I said in that message, I was always told by my mum not to be too concerned what other people thought about me. But as you read the scriptures, you see God is very concerned about how people think about his reputation. It's not driven by the same insecurity and pride that drove my quest to be seen in people's eyes as something more than I was. In God's quest to have people understand his name and his reputation, he wants people to know who he is so that they can access all that he is 
on their behalf. If we misunderstand God's reputation, it's not he that suffers, but we who suffer. And so God's drive for his reputation among the nations is actually for the people's sake. It's on their behalf. Last week, I introduced you just briefly to the, cho- the people that God has chosen to participate, to uh, the people that he has commissioned, commissioned. You know, he has invited into this mission on the wider nation's behalf. And we looked at the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God lays his hand on an old childless couple and intends that they be the launch pad of this rescue mission. It's a plan that only God could come up with, to be truthful. The call of Abraham is the, is the answer of God to the cosmic question that's posed by the radical fracture caused by sin recorded in Genesis chapter 3 through chapter 11. Those chapters record the escalation of man's sin, the unraveling of civilization, and it poses a cosmic question. Is God's, is God's plan going to be thwarted? Well, Genesis 12 is the answer to that. No, it's not. I'm launching a rescue plan and I'm doing it through this old couple. And, uh, you know, as I said last week, you could almost hear the corporate gasp of the angelic hosts as God announces this, this particular plan. What we noted in God's election of Abraham was that it's initiated by a sovereign act of God's mercy and grace. It's unconditional in the sense that Abraham was not required to meet any prior conditions. He didn't merit God's actions on his behalf as a result of anything that he had done or anything that lay within him. And yet, although the grace is unconditional, there's also an implied conditionality in this covenant. Because though God's promises are grounded in his grace alone, Abraham is required to respond in both faith and obedience. So we see this glorious plan of God's purpose to bless the nation, but the enduring challenge is that he plans to do that through Abraham and his seed. And so we have this immediate tension between God's unconditional grace and Abraham's response of obedience. That tension, by the way, runs right through the Bible and into the New Testament. You find both Paul and James grappling with this tension. Is it grace or is it works? And the answer is yes. It's both. One comes first, but the other must come as a result of the first. So it's both God's unconditional grace to Abraham and Abraham's response of obedience and faith. Now, there's another tension in this story, and it's the tension between the universality of God's goal, which is to bless all of the nations, and the particularity of the means that God plans to use Abraham and his seed. So these two sets of tensions between God's unconditional grace and Abraham's conditional obedience and faith, and between the universality of what God wants to do through the particularity of a, of a an old couple and their seed. And to go to either ends of these tensions is ultimately to distort the mission. You have to hold those things in tension. So from Genesis 12, we have 
God, in order to get to the universal goal of blessing the nations, now focuses on his particular means, Abraham and his family. And from Genesis chapter 12 onwards, through the rest of the book of Genesis, Abraham's family is in view. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, they take the center stage as the story unfolds. We then go into the book of Exodus where we're introduced now to Abraham's seed, his descendants, his family who are now slaves in Egypt and they've been there for 400 years. God then steps in in an incredible act of grace and begins to redeem them from that slavery. He brings them out through the Exodus, and in Exodus chapter 19, at Mount Sinai, where the law is given, he renews the covenant with Abraham and his descendants, and he constitutes them as his special nation. So I'm reading here from Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. He says, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this passage is as pivotal to the book of Exodus as Genesis 12 was to the book of Genesis. And they are very similar passages. Like Genesis 12, this passage has a combination of imperatives, that is, how Israel should behave. They are to be obedient. They are to be faithful to the covenant. So there are the imperatives, how Israel should behave, and then there are the promises, what Israel will be under God's grace to the nations, a a kingdom of priests who minister to the nations. If they will walk in his ways, then through them the nations will be blessed. And you can hear the echoes of the Abrahamic covenant, of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. He's now saying to his nation in Exodus 19. We see it echoed in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, where it says, The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, then all of the nations of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. So in response to faith and obedience, as as was modeled by Abraham their father, there will be this universal recognition of Yahweh's blessing on his people and as a result of that, people will be drawn to Yahweh's fame and to his name and then through that they too will be blessed. So at the risk of kind of redundancy, let me say once again, the particularity of Israel is intended to serve the universality of God's commitment and interest in the world. Israel's election serves God's mission. It's instrumental. They were to know God, and as a result of them knowing God, through them, God would be known. So election is instrumental, not an end in itself. Election is always fundamentally missional and not about who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. If you read some New Testament scholars as they talk about the concept of election in the New Testament, you'd swear and declare it's about who God determines will be saved from before the foundation of the earth and who will be lost. Well, to do that is to lose touch with the original intention of this idea and concept. 
Christopher Wright says this, if we allow the doctrine of election to become merely a secret calculus that determines who gets saved and who doesn't, we've lost touch with its original biblical intention. Election is missional, not, not to do with salvation primarily. The life of God's missional people is absolutely vital in the success of that mission. God's grace that he extends to his people has to be followed by faith and obedience. Now, as far as Abraham is concerned, we see this in Genesis chapter 18. There's a pivotal passage there. And it says this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. There's God's universal purpose shining through again. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. Now, the context, by the way, in this passage is God's judgment about to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah. And throughout the scriptures, Sodom particularly is a proverbial prototype of human sin that's about to come under God's judgment. And here, in this context, Abraham is being challenged by the Lord to follow his ways. And I just want to, you know, parenthetically say, whatever the story of redemption is meant to be, it is not and has never been a story of escapism. We are in the world for the world, Okay. We're not going to be ripped out. God's intention is not to pull his people away from the world. He doesn't want them to become the world, but he wants them to be in the world for the world. This is mission. Now, in this passage of, Abraham, of the Lord speaking to Abraham, there are three key elements that are bound up in a single idea. And the elements are election, ethics, and mission. So there's this idea of election. I have chosen Abraham. There is the idea of ethics. He is to keep the way of the Lord, especially as it relates to righteousness and justice. And he's to be on mission. He's, if he will do these things, I will bring about the promises I made to him, which were to bless the world through him. So you've got this three key ideas. Abraham is elected and called. He has to respond in faith and obedience. And as a result of that, God's mission will go forward. So what's God's ultimate mission? To bless the nations. How will it be achieved? Through the existence in the world of a community that will be taught to walk in the ways of God, focusing on righteousness and justice. That's ethics. How shall such a community come into existence? Well, God chose it. God chose Abraham to be its founding father. That's election. Now, the crucial thing for you and I to grasp is the ethical quality of God's people becomes a vital link between their calling and the mission that they are called to participate in. So Christopher Wright says God's intention to bless that, the nations is inseparable from God's ethical demand on his people, he is, on the people that he's created to be the agents of that blessing. So folks, there can be no effective biblical mission without biblical ethics. And when you look at the Exodus passage, you see exactly the same pattern. Let me read it to you again. You have yourselves seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, 
and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First of all, I want you to notice the initiative of God's redeeming grace is the prior reality on which all that he says to this people is founded. So he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God, in his grace, moves on this people. Israel's keeping of the law was always meant to be a response to what God had already done in grace. Sometimes, again, when you read New Testament scholars or you hear people preach, you would swear and declare and perhaps imagine that in the Old Testament, redemption is based on people keeping the law. And you often hear people say, that was the covenant of works, we are now in the covenant of grace. Listen, God's grace was extended to this people before they were ever invited to live in obedience. Israel's relationship with God was founded on redeeming grace. Unconditionally, God called Abraham. Unconditionally, he steps in and redeems them from Egypt. The the foundational reality is God's grace to his people. Then, from there, ethics is the response. Their behavior, their lives reflect the redeeming grace. The response isn't an, an attempt to gain redemption. That's already happened. It's about fulfilling the mission that their identity now, this new identity now lays upon them. The identity and the outflowing obedience flows from grace that God has shown these people. Biblical ethics is the life we lead and it is a response to redemptive grace. God's election of this people is intended to produce a community committed to an ethical reflection of God's character, righteousness and justice. And God's mission is predicated upon a community like this actually existing. Now, I'm going to leap right over to pretty much the end of the story. I'm passing over a huge portion of it just for a moment. We'll come back. But I want to leap right over into the end of the New Testament and read to you a passage from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. With all this in mind, hear this, as Peter says. You are God's chosen generation. You are his royal priesthood. You are his holy nation. You are his peculiar people. Listen, every person who's listening to that is thinking of Exodus chapter 19, because that's the exact same language. And J.B. Phillips actually says, all the old titles of God's people now belong to you. It is for you now to demonstrate the goodness of him who has called you out of darkness into his amazing light. In the past, you were not a people at all. Now you are the people of God. Listen, Peter is drawing straight out of Exodus chapter 19, and it contains the same elements. This passage contains exactly the same elements that we noted in the original call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and the constituting of that nation in Exodus chapter 19. There's election. He says, you are a chosen generation, called out of darkness. I've called you, I've elected you. And the reason that I've elected you is verse 12, that people may glorify God when they see how you conduct yourselves. So you've got election, you've got mission, and in the middle, connecting those two things, you've got ethics. You are to be a holy nation demonstrating his goodness. Those three 
qualities. The election which is followed by our response of faith and obedience, that's the ethical life that we live that reflects God's character and the purpose is that people would see the goodness of God and respond to it. And as a result of that, be blessed. So Peter, with one stroke, connects us, the New Testament people of God, with the whole heritage and the grand narrative of Israel. We are continuous with Abraham. We are continuous with those people that heard these words in Exodus chapter 19 at Mount Sinai. We are Abraham's seed. And Paul says that just straight out in Galatians 3.19. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to the promise. Elected by the same grace, committed to the same ethical reflection of the character of the God that has redeemed us for the purpose of blessing the nations. There's one story that runs through this. And we are continuous with that. Redeemed by the grace of God, we are in that story. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11 when he says, you have been grafted into the olive tree and the, the, the glory and truth of the roots is now flowing through your veins. You are in this story. You are Abraham's seed. In conclusion, let me jump back again to the story of Israel and ask a question. Flowing from Exodus chapter 19, the question is, so how did Israel do in performing this co-mission where they were called into cooperating with the mission of God? And you've read the Old Testament and you know the answer. For the largest portion of the story that we call the Old Testament, it is a tragic record of Israel's failure to walk in faith and ethical obedience in response to God's call and to God's grace. Now, there are a few notable exceptions, um, but by and large, the nations were not blessed by Israel's ethical reflection of the God that had called them. Among, of course, the notable exceptions are the story of Rahab, you know, in the, in, in, in the story of Jericho, maybe the book of Ruth. You, you look at David's mighty men, and the reality is that under David's leadership, many men from the nations joined him. You know, you've got Uriah the Hittite, you've got Ithra the, the, um, the Moabite. There, are, there were many men in David's uh, band who, who were outsiders, who had come in as a result of the grace that was on David. We see it a little bit in Solomon's reign where people were coming from the ends of the earth, the Queen of Sheba, to sit and to hear his wisdom and, and as a result to, to honor Yahweh. But by and large, the story is one of absolute tragedy. And by the time we reach very far into the story, the rescue operation, that is Abraham's family, is itself in need of rescue. The Abraham project, the Israel vocation, reads, reaches a point where it needs rescue. The lifeboat itself has been smashed upon the rocks. So now what is God going to do? Who will come to help? How will God's plan to bless the nations go forward? You know, the whole of the Old Testament can be seen actually as God's search for a faithful Israelite through whom he could fulfill the promise of Abraham and bless the nations. And everywhere he looked, there wasn't one. Again and again throughout the New Testament, you have phraseology like, God looked to see if there was a man and there was none. And in the book of Isaiah, it says basically, modern day translation, so God rolled up his own sleeves and said, I'll do it myself. 
He couldn't find a faithful Israelite. The corporate son, Israel, failed. So in the fullness of time, Galatians said, he sent forth his own beloved son, born of a woman, born under the law, by which phrase he means he comes as an Israelite, under, under Torah. David Holwerder comments of Jesus, he is the representative embodiment of Israel through whom the nations will be blessed. Jesus embodies Israel's identity and vocation. He becomes the faithful Israelite that God is looking for in order that he can bless the nations. You know when Jesus stood in John chapter 9 and said, I am the light of the world. He was doing more than simply saying, hey look, you're surrounded by darkness and I've got a torch. What he was effectively saying is the vocation that was laid on you to be the light to the nations now is laid on me. Because that was their vocation. Isaiah 49 verse 6. You shall be a light to guide the nations unto me. They understood it to be so. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is writing and he says to the, to the, to the Israelites, you are confident that you're a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. He went on to say, you're dreaming. You have been none of those things. The one person who was those things stood among you and said, I am the light of the world. More than just where you're dark, I'll bring light. He's saying, your vocation, your identity, I take upon myself. That's why in John chapter 15, when he said, I am the true vine. What, have you ever thought, why did he say true? If he was just setting up an illustration, why wouldn't he say, hey, my life is like a vine. And, and, and the life that flows through me flows through you into the branches. He's making more than that point. He's saying you were called as a vine. Remember Isaiah chapter 5? Maybe from last year as we looked at the book of Isaiah where God actually calls Israel a vineyard. And he says, I've done all this to my vineyard. I took out the stones. I built a wall. I tilled the ground. I made sure it was on a fertile anointed hill which is literally what it means in the Hebrew. And when the time came, I came looking for fruit and there was nothing. In fact, the Hebrew says, what I got was stink fruit. Very, very in your face. I did all this and this was the result. And then he says, what more could I have done to my vineyard? And the rhetorical question de demands the answer, nothing. Israel understood their vocation as something of a vineyard. You see it in chapter uh, in, in Psalm 80. You see it in Jeremiah chapter 2. They are likened to the vineyard, and they've been false. They've brought forth false fruit. So when Jesus stands up and says, I am the true vine, he's saying more than just, my life can become yours if you'll be my branches. He's saying the vocation and identity that was laid on this people has now been laid on me. Right through the story, God has been looking for this faithful Israelite through whom he can bless the nations. And in me, Jesus says, he's found it. He's the true seed of Abraham. And Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter one, uh, 3, verse 16, in the message translation where it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and, his, and to his descendant. You will observe that Scripture, in careful language of a legal document, does not say to descendants, referring to everybody in general, but to your descendant. The noun note is singular, referring to Christ. So we go right back to Genesis chapter 12 where God says to Abraham, I've called you by grace. 
You reflect my, my grace by, um, you, you honor my grace by reflecting my ethical character. And as a result of that, I will bless the nations through your seed. The tragic story of Israel failing in that mission is redeemed by the one Israelite who comes and lives in the fulfillment of that word. And through that seed, singular, not plural, the earth will be blessed. So we bring the story right through to the coming of Jesus. And there, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to invite the musicians to come. And hopefully in a couple of weeks' time after Easter, we'll pick this idea up. Let me just say this, though, and I'll I'll say it again a bit later on. The New Testament is not a departure from the story. Sometimes people talk about Jesus and Paul as if they are rejecting the story and starting a whole new one. You know, it's like Judaism couldn't work. It never worked. It was built on works. It it failed miserably. God comes along, shows us grace. So the old story is a story of works. The new story is a story of grace. Um, You know, three cheers for the new story. It's not like that. The old story actually was built on grace as well. The grace shown to Abraham. The grace in redeeming the people out of Egypt. As a response to grace, they were supposed to live an ethical reflection of his life. Jesus comes not to start a new story, but to be the consummation of the old one and the linchpin of the new one going forward. It's still the same story. And it still has to do with grace and the ethical reflection of a community who are committed to that story. And friends, that's you and me. That's you and me. We're the ones who are to, who are to respond to the grace of God and to live in in the way of the Lord with a particular emphasis on righteousness and justice. That's an incredible challenge, but God's mission depends on it. God's mission is predicated on there being a community that are absolutely committed to reflect God's ethical character to the nations and as a result, seeing the nations blessed. Nothing has changed. The grace of God is still there that that be the case. The power of the Spirit is available to us so that we live that ethical reflection. That's our challenge. And can I just say we can't fail as Israel failed. God wants a people who will bless the nations. You and I stand in that stream and our commitment has to be that people. We commit to be that people. Let's stand, shall we? Part of that commitment, by the way, is also to be a worshiping people. We walk in the way of the Lord and part of the way of the Lord is to recognize he is incomparable, he is sovereign, he is our redeemer and he deserves our worship. And I want to challenge you this morning to give that as we close, okay? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.